You're listening to Over the Top, a Great War podcast. I'm your host, Richard Cantu. Please join me as I talk about World War I history and preserve the stories from the soldiers who lived through it. Welcome back, folks. This is episode 56, part four of the Ottomans. And on this episode, I'll be diving into the invasion of Mesopotamia. Mesopotamia is a region in Iraq that follows the Tigris and the Euphrates river system. Baghdad is in the middle. The world's first cities were established in Mesopotamia. Cities such as Babylon, Ashur, Akkad, and Uruk. At one point in history, all cities within Mesopotamia fell under the Akkadian Empire before breaking off into two separate empires, the Babylonian and the Assyrian. And I know this is irrelevant to the Great War, but the Babylonians also created advanced mathematical problems along with the base 60 system, a 60-second minute, a 60-minute hour, and a 360-degree circle. They were also astronomers. Mesopotamia actually faded away by the time Alexander the Great conquered the Persian Empire, but many historians still use the reference when describing this region. So, it's good to know where it is. That was just a few little fun facts about Mesopotamia. My apologies, it took so long to get this episode out. And I'll be completely honest with you, I just needed some much-needed rest and downtime. I had a good break in between semesters at school, along with the holidays that pass, and I just needed a, I don't want to say a de-stressor, but just a break. I, I really just needed a, to breathe a little bit. It really has nothing to do with the podcast. Like I said, I got off a long semester. We just did that big move. Things have been really super busy at work. Yeah, I mean, the podcast does take work. You got to write it. You got to record it. You got to edit edit it. And you got to manage it. So all things combined in one pot. I hope you understand. I just needed a little breathing room just for a, what is it? Shoot. Well, a couple of months now since the last episode. But uh, yeah, I hope you can understand that. But I feel refreshed. And here I am. And what am I drinking for this episode? I am drinking a coffee old-fashioned. I think I've drank this before on the episode. It's one of my go-tos. Couple dash dashes of orange bitters, two ounces of coffee liqueur, and I use Mr. Black. Mr. Black comes from Australia. Good one. Um, along with what bourbon am I using? I'm using Michter's bourbon. Um, it's two ounces of that. Yeah. So two ounces of coffee liqueur, two ounces of bourbon or whiskey of your preference and a few dashes of those orange bitters. And you got yourself a fine cocktail of the hour. Let me tell you, it is good. All right. Let us life update. Jiu-jitsu was going really great. I was really getting into a groove with my training, and then I really messed my knee up. In fact, I'm wearing a brace right now. Um, I mean, look, I've had injuries all throughout my life. I've cracked my kneecap, broken some ribs. Um, I've heard plenty of times. 
But when you get older, you got to step back a little bit. So definitely not done with jujitsu. I'm First, I thought I was going to be down a week, then it turned into two weeks, and I'm thinking I just might be down for the month of February and come back March, hopefully back into it. So I can't wait to get back on the mats and uh, start training again. But look, there's really not much I could do about that at this time. Uh, during the downtime, wife and I took a trip to San Francisco. Um, let me tell you about San Francisco. <laughs> San Francisco's a fantastic city. There's so much to do. There's a lot to see. Same time, it's kind of weird. You got some weirdos roaming that city, man. There's a lot of cleaning up to do. I won't. I don't want to tell you the gross things, but there's certain parts of San Francisco I'll just say stay away from. Um, I forgot the name of the districts or where it's at, but yeah, it's. Jesus. So, I mean, it looks looks like apocalyptic. It's it's crazy. But outside of those those few districts, the city's great. Um, I really enjoy Chinatown. I haven't been to San Francisco in a long time. I think the last time I went was 2007 or 2008. I went to go watch an Angels baseball game when they played the San Francisco Giants in an interleague game. So, a buddy of mine, we went as a group. Um. Yeah, so it's been a while we've been to San Francisco, and I can tell you what, just since 2008 till now, it, it, it's changed. <laughs> Again, fun city, I recommend it, but you just be aware of your surroundings. Um, in the middle of daylight, broad daylight, car pulls up, breaks open the windows of another vehicle, starts stealing bags. Cops didn't even put a chase. We were talking with another police officer, like, why? And they said, well, you know, basically, there's nothing they could do to them. I mean, it's it's uh, it's sort of a Mad Max thing going down. They got to do something. But uh, super sad to see because it's a great city. Anywho, went to a couple of cool tiki bars there. So we got that in. Went to Anchor Steam Brewery. Saw a lot of sights. Overall, we had a good time. But again, I'm aware of my surroundings. I knew where not to go. And uh, we made the best time of it. Um... What else do I got? Oh, yeah. Okay. I know this doesn't have anything to do with history, but I'd like to promote an old acquaintance's book he just released. The book is called Slim Chances by Jimmy Rumsey. It's a memoir of his life story from his struggles as a teenager to his involvement with a street gang in Orange County, California called the Deuce Trey Crips. In October of 1997, Jimmy was shot in the face by a rival gang on a corner in Tustin they dubbed Killer Corner. He was left for dead, but miraculously survived, which ultimately led to his decision to change his life and devote himself to family and God. And the book is fantastic. I really like reading books where people get a second chance at life and they turn it around for the best. If you like stories about true struggle, redemption, forgiveness, you're really going to enjoy this book. And that killer corner was only a few miles from where I grew up. Uh, and I know a lot of people in this book, along with Jimmy. In fact, when Jimmy was shot, I was already a few years deep in the military. I remember I came home on leave and a friend of mine had told me about him. And uh, I immediately thought he was dead. And when I found out 
he didn't die. I mean, clearly I was happy he didn't die, but I was I was pretty surprised hearing that he got shot in the face. Um, it just really makes me happy to see that Jimmy changed his life around. He's giving back to the community and finally found peace within himself. I'll leave an Amazon link to his book. Please grab yourself a copy. You're really going to enjoy it. All right. How about I do some recapping from the last episode? On the last episode, the Ottomans targeted two Entente powers to strike at first. The British at the Suez Canal by way of the Sinai Desert in Egypt and the Russians at the Caucasus. The Ottomans were defeated on both fronts. They would then attempt to retake Basra, which would also result in them being defeated. All three times they struck first, they lost, plain and simple. But the attempt to retake Basra, which is known as the Battle of Shaiba, and the raid on the Suez Canal wasn't nearly as devastating as the Battle of Sarakamish at the Caucasus. The Battle of Sarakamish was, was an atrocity. It was a severe blow to the morale of the empire with over 100,000 casualties. Let's not forget the citizens of the Ottoman Empire didn't even want to be involved in this war. Neither did the young Turks. They were forced into it. So here they are with thousands upon thousands of their working men, either dead or seriously wounded now. And to have a disaster on this level, of course it would hit home hard. It wouldn't be until Mustafa Kemal led his soldiers into victory that they had regained some confidence in their soldiers. The young Turks were so bitter about losing the Caucasus, they turned their anger towards the Armenians, who they blamed for the defeat by providing Russia with intelligence. They even made it a crime to talk about the defeat. That's how sour the subject was to them. And how about the men who died in agonizing death in the blistering cold? Some say that freezing to death is one of the worst kind of deaths you can have. Although I'm not really sure about how you'd measure that since you won't live to tell the tale. That's just what they say. Some of the soldiers began to lose their minds before death set in. They lost all sense of reality, what was real and what wasn't. And that's kind of scary to think that's how a lot of these soldiers' last breaths were spent. They would move in the day and halt at night. Honestly, I'd rather take my chances to keep moving at night in order to keep the body warm. Once you stop, especially since they didn't have the proper clothing, the chance of you freezing to death in that mountain range was pretty good. Your body sweat or perspiration with that wind chill alone is deadly. Nowadays, cold weather gear has come quite a long way. You have moisture wicking material to repel the sweat away from your body. You're still cold, but it'll prevent you from being wet, which could bring hypothermia into the party. On the Caucasus, they were probably drenched in sweat. Then they just stopped, and, and it was over for a lot of them. It really was a horrible death. You know, they're still finding bodies in the Italian Alps. I have to think there's still bodies spread out through the Caucasus that haven't been discovered. Enver Pasha 
the Minister of War for the Empire is really the one who put these attacks into motion. And while other officers faced disciplinary actions for their failures, nothing happened to Enver. I guess this is this is what the perks from having the title of Pasha was. Episode 55 was a focus on these three battles in which the Ottomans took a gamble by going on the offensive and lost. Now, they'll be forced into defensive positions. One being the Dardanelles campaign, which I already covered, and the other, the British invasion of Mesopotamia, which brings us into this episode. By April of 1915, the Ottoman forces in Mesopotamia were nearly in shambles following Suleiman Askeri's defeat at Shaiba. Ottoman commanders had no choice but to go door-to-door picking up any Iraqi deserters, threatening them with punishment if they didn't rejoin the ranks. Even though Turkish officers regarded any Arab recruits as being unreliable, they too were given the ultimatum. What Ottoman commanders didn't expect was a great resistance the Iraqis were displaying towards them. In May of 1915, towns along the Middle Euphrates began a rebellion against the Ottomans that lasted until the Ottoman rule was over in southern Iraq. Sunnis and Shiites have been in dispute for centuries. I want to say it's been about 14 or 15 centuries old or worth of fighting, but don't quote me on that. The, the dispute is over who should succeed the Prophet Muhammad as leader of the Islamic faith. And I'm sure there's probably much more to it than that, but let's just leave it at that. The Ottoman rulers were Sunni and the Shiites were or are Iraqi and Iranians. So there's been beef between the two for a very long time. The first rebellion against the Ottomans in 1915 began at Najaf after the Ottoman governor in Baghdad dispatched a large force to round up the deserters who were hiding in the ancient city. Najaf was a pilgrimage site for Shiite Muslims and was a refuge for deserters. The Shiites resented being dragged into this global war so they answered with a rebellion. For the people of Najaf, the Ottomans crossed the line when the soldiers went house to house and tore off the veils of the women to make sure they weren't men hiding behind it. The men obviously took this as an insult against the honor of their women. They planned the right moment to take revenge. During the night of May 22, 1915, a group of rebels took over the town of Najaf with the help of motivated town folks. They sieged Ottoman government buildings along with army barracks. The battle went on for three days. The rebels destroyed buildings, records, and communication lines. The Ottoman survivors were held hostage. The Ottoman governor in Baghdad sent a delegate to negotiate. He pleaded with the rebels saying everyone was at risk from the infidel invaders and it was every Muslim's duty to fight them off and they needed to do it together. The rebels didn't want to hear this and ignored all negotiations to rejoin the fight. The rebels didn't want anything to do with this global war that would uproot their lives. In the end, the Ottoman governor ended up negotiating a safe return for the hostages. The rebellion in Najaf encouraged other towns to follow suit. 
Many towns and villages along the Middle Euphrates rose up against the empire in the summer of 1915. There's a lot weighing on the shoulders of the Ottoman Empire at this time. For the Shiites, they looked at rebelling against the Ottomans as their duty. One town or village would look at the other and they jumped on board. It wasn't a competition, but almost became like one. One town would try to rebel harder than the other. Have you ever heard of a competition to see who could rebel the best? In Karbala, they, the rebels burned down government buildings, houses, along with schools and even hospitals. The city was in such shambles that people had to re relocate to other towns. There's now space constraints. And then came the Bedouins to the rebellion. However, the Bedouins also starting, started fighting with the Shiites, creating a whole other issue. Karbala and the Middle Euphrates was a complete mess. Now you have the deserters or rebels along with the Bedouins fighting the Ottomans. Then you have the rebels fighting the Bedouins. This region was unstable to say the least. But what it meant for the Ottomans was they ultimately lost control of the Euphrates Basin. So if you're on the side of the rebellion, this was a success. And if you're a Turk, this could be chalked up as another loss. While all this was going down, the British continued their push into Mesopotamia. The Tommies were marching through Iraq. The Indian Expeditionary Force received a new commander by the name of General Sir John Nixon. Up to now, there was sort of confusion between London and India what the role of the IEF would be. London wanted to secure its assets, which was oil, while India wanted a dominating presence to the Muslim world. After bringing on Nixon, he agreed on taking the dominating presence approach, which is why they made the push into Mesopotamia. Nixon now had his men pushing up the Tigris headed for the port of Amara. And I do apologize if you hear somebody snoring in the background. That's my always special guest sleeping. Anywho. <laughs> Um, okay, idiot. Nixon ordered the 6th Division under the command of Major General Charles Townsend to break through the Turkish lines north of Basra and Kurna. Townsend deployed hundreds of small native-style riverboats to be used as improvised troop transports. They were supported by British steamboats, equipped with cannons and machine guns. They were dubbed Townsend's Regatta. Once this regatta rolled in, the Ottomans started to flee, and the British really didn't receive any opposing forces at this particular time. Even the villagers began to wave white flags showing their support for the Tommies rolling in. On June 3rd, the advance party reached Amara to find over 3,000 Ottoman troops fleeing. Those who didn't flee, including officers, surrendered to the advance party. They didn't even have to wait for the main body of over 15,000 troops from the 6th Division to arrive for a surrender. The situation was playing in favor for the British right now. But for the Ottomans, this was demoralizing. Their motivation was 
Very lackluster, if that's the appropriate word for this. Very uninspiring. After taking Amara, Nixon then focused on Nasiriya, which would complete the British conquest of the Basra province. Similar in size to Amara, Nasiriya had a population estimated to be around 10,000 at the time. Nixon's plan at Nasiriya was to win over the Bedouins by defeating the Turks. The Beds had a dominating presence over the Turks at Nasiriya, but they knew the Turks could bring in reinforcements if they took them on by themselves. Now, if the British defeated them, they would have a strong ally to hold it down with. And the British said, hey, we both want them eliminated. We'll do the dirty work if you side with us. Anyway, the advance began on the 27th of June under the command of General George Goring. The British attacked Nasiriya on the 24th of July, opening the battle with volleys of artillery fire from steamships. The IED then stormed the Ottoman trenches with rifles and bayonets, and a fight broke out. Naturally, when this happens, as we've learned, a lot of people get killed, if not seriously wounded during these kind of battles. By the way, did you know that in the mid-1800s, around 1850 or so, a man was working in a mine when an explosive accidentally went off and a metal rod entered his face and exited through the front of his skull going right through his brain. And he lived. In fact, he was talking and coherent right after it happened. There was even brains coming out. How insane is that? Obviously off topic, but I just thought about this when I said bayonets and people getting killed, which translates to gore to death. Anywho, let me steer this crazy train back on track. Because the British at this point were used to the Ottomans not putting up a fight, it came as a surprise they were standing their ground. It actually turned into a ferocious battle. The British were forced to fight with sweat and blood in order to take every inch of ground that, that they gained. The fighting went on until the early evening. By that time, the Ottomans had suffered 2,000 casualties along with 950 prisoners taken. During the evening, under the cover of darkness, the remaining Ottoman troops slipped out the rear into a retreat. Come early morning, there was nobody to fight at Nasiriya and the British weren't exactly disappointed to hear that news. They just went through a good rumble. The British now control Nasiriya and the Basra province. The Ottomans continued to get pushed back and when they put up a fight, they took serious casualties. Nixon then set his eyes on Kut al-Amara. Kut is on the left bank of the Tigris River, roughly about 100 miles southeast of Baghdad. British intelligence reported that the retreating Ottomans had withdrew back to Kut, and with the soldiers that were already there, along with those that were now pouring in, Kut had an estimated 7,000 Ottoman troops at this time. Nixon saw this as a threat, believing British positions in the Basra province wouldn't be secured until they eliminated the enemy at Kut. This was Nixon's opinion on the matter. There was also a lot of political discussion taking place behind the scenes. 
the divided talks between London and India. India had much more to gain by securing their dominance in the Middle East since their neighbor, their, they neighbored Persia and Afghanistan to its northwest. The government of India urged London to authorize the occupation of Kut as a strategic necessity. <laughs> Can you keep it down a little bit? Jeez. The Viceroy of India, Lord Charles Harding, even requested the Indian 28th Brigade to be brought over from Yemen to reinforce the 6th Division before the attack. However, this was, de this was denied as they were desperately needed to protect the Port of Aden. Despite not receiving the reinforcements, Nixon believed he could take Kut with the forces he had at hand. Mainly because he believed the Ottoman army in Iraq was in shambles. This is at least what Nixon had reassured the Viceroy with. The Ottomans would be no match for his army. He proposed a September offensive and Lord Harding approved. General Townsend and his regatta were again called up for action to take the town of Kut Alamara. Townsend had some serious reserves about this though. For one, the plans began in late July and he had been sent to India to recover from an illness. But that wasn't his main reason for his concern. His real concern was when, when would, would the push stop? The further they got into Iraq, the further the communication lines got along with supplies, meaning they were being spread out thin. He didn't want to be left in open waters with rescue boats too far away while sharks encircled he and his men. Maybe not the best analogy, but I think you get the picture. What eased his concerns was the commander-in-chief of the Indian Army, Sir Beauchamp Duff, telling Townsend he wouldn't let him go beyond Coote unless his division was at full strength. Townsend felt better about this and began the march upriver on September 1st. I mean, to be honest, Townsend's concerns were legitimate. The farther they went upriver, the longer it would take to get communications through, along with getting supplies and possible reinforcements. He was being put in a very bad situation. But hey, when you get those marching orders, you march. And there was another problem brewing. The Ottomans had just appointed a new hard-charging fighting general to their army in Mesopotamia named Nureddin Bey, also known as the Bearded Nureddin. He'll later become a Pasha. Nureddin was a talented commander who had a respectable career prior to this. He had real experience and was in the process of putting back together the broken pieces of the army. Through the end of July through September, he was growing his troops in numbers while the British numbers were slowly declining. The British sent up reconnaissance planes to assess the Ottoman positions. A very dangerous job at this time these, for these brave pilots because of the blistering heat along with the sandstorms. They did manage to get the photographs they needed. Pictures show the Ottoman troops well entrenched for miles on both sides of the Tigris between impassable marshland and a place called Al-Sin. 
This left the British troops with two options. Either they risk a dangerous frontal attack or try to march around the marshland and flank the Ottoman soldiers. The Ottomans also sabotaged the entrance at the river, which would prevent British boats from providing support. British intelligence put the Ottoman strength at Alsin at 6,000 compared to the British 11,000 strong. They also believed that three quarters of the Ottoman numbers were Arab. Some of the younger officers weren't feeling the same motivation as the high command. A captain from Townsend's regatta wrote in his diary saying, the numbers are very big and they are strongly entrenched and well wired in. More dirty work for some of us. During the late hours on the 27th of September, British troops moved into a multi-front attacking position. The plan was to have a portion of the troops draw Ottoman fire from the front, while the rest would circle around and attack from, from flanking positions. The plan was to attack in the early morning hours, but several British columns got lost in the dark, and the attack had to be launched in broad daylight. When the attack kicked off, the British were fully exposed to the light which facing machine gun fire and artillery is never good. The Ottomans were ripping them to pieces, forcing the British to dig in all day and through the night. The next morning, the British soldiers were exhausted, but still managed to put up another fight. The two sides fought valiantly. The British kept pushing with all they had despite taking heavy losses. They decided to hold the ground which they gained through the night. While the British held the ground during the evening, the Ottomans tactically withdrew to Kut Alamara. It took the British a couple days to make uh, chase due to the regrouping and, and healing up. The serious wounded had to be evacuated by boat downriver to Omara and Basra. But the Ottomans decided to make a bold gamble. They decided not to fight the British for Kut. Instead, they retreated to Baghdad on the 29th of September. It was a really good move for both as they were all licking their wounds. Now, most would see this as a win for Townsend because the British now controlled Kut. But Kut Alamara is, it's pretty deep in Iraq. They're now roughly around 230 miles from Basra. That's something around 375 kilometers, if I'm not mistaken, which I could be. It's far from the main support. That's what I'm saying. So Townsend's regatta is really in a dangerous position at this point. And another big problem for the British in the Middle East, by October, the IEF was now in control of Kut. However, the politicians and war planners in London are also realizing the loss was inevitable at the Dardanelles. If they retreated from the Dardanelles, this would fuel the fire for the Ottoman Jihad. London saw the occupation of Baghdad as a remedy for that. General Nixon stood his ground believing the 6th Division alone is all that he needed to take Baghdad. But Townsend didn't see eye to eye with this. Townsend wanted to strengthen the position already gained and to hold in place. He also stated if the British wanted to take Baghdad, they would need two full divisions, one to attack and one to hold. Pretty standard request for an attack plan during the Great War. 
On the 21st of October, British war planners sided with Nixon. They wanted full occupation of Baghdad. On the 23rd of October, a telegram was sent to the Viceroy giving Nixon authorization to occupy and, and promising him two Indian divisions which were to be sent from France as soon as possible. During this time though, the Ottomans at Baghdad were transforming themselves into a new army. In fact, by September of 1915, they had reorganized into the 6th Army. They were now an equal fighting force to the British in Mesopotamia, if not much more equipped. In December, a new Ottoman 6th Army commander arrived in Baghdad who received a hero's welcome. He was a Prussian commander by the name of Wilhelm Leopold Kolmar Freier von der Giltz, which I'm just going to refer to him as his better known name, Goltz Pasha, because his full name is just plain right out ridiculously long. By the way, Goltz Pasha was 72 ripe years of age at this time. I mean, damn, 72 years old. Good Lord. Well, Townsend had roughly about 14,000 troops for the job. At this time, it was unknown exactly what they were about to face on the Ottoman side. And because of this, in November, before the launch of the assault, he ordered an aerial reconnaissance. One pilot's plane was shot to pieces and was forced to land behind enemy lines. The pilot was taken prisoner and because of this was never able to relay to Townsend that there were over 20,000 enemy soldiers waiting their arrival. During the early morning hours on November 22nd, the British opened up their assault on Salman Pak. They moved in four columns under the assumption that they had the element of surprise. As the British came into range, the Turkish opened up with machine gun and artillery fire. Both sides locked up in a hand-to-hand -hand bayonet battle that lasted for hours. Think about all the hand-to-hand -hand fighting I've talked about so far and what it always leads to. Mallets breaking skulls apart, brains spilling out, soldiers being impaled. It was extremely gruesome. The British managed to take the Turkish front line, but shortly after the Turkish 51st Division launched a counter-assault, and the 51st had battle experience. This brutal style of fighting raged on into the night. Casualties were piling up on both sides. Dead were sprawled out everywhere. At the end of the first day, the British lost over 40% of its force and the Ottomans had lost an estimated 50%. The sun rose on the second day and so did the fighting. It continued where it stopped. Again, they locked up in a brutal hand-to-hand -hand battle. The wounded in the open became a problem. They couldn't get stretcher bearers to them. There was no medicine to ease the pain. Men everywhere were dying in agony with no help coming for them. Men were on the ground holding their guts that were spewing out. Men were bleeding out everywhere. We've heard this before about the cries for help, men pleading for somebody to help them in the middle of the night and the day. This was that scenario. 
for the British, if they did retrieve a seriously wounded soldier, you know, there was nowhere to evacuate him. So death to many of the wounded, no matter where they lied, was probably imminent. The fighting raged on like this until the 25th of November. It was then that Townsend realized he was up against a much larger force than he expected. And that taking Baghdad with no reinforcements coming until January was unrealistic. Townsend ordered all available riverboats to be brought up to the trans to transport the wounded. Those who were still able to fight were given the dreadful task of retreating under fire. Townsend pulled back all troops to the occupied town between Kut and Basra. Problem is, now they didn't even have enough troops to hold these towns until reinforcements could arrive. Townsend's retreat, although probably smart of him to do so, was a huge turning point, point for the Ottomans at Mesopotamia. They would now go on the offensive and force the British to take a defensive stance. First target to rekindle the fire for a jihad with the Shiites. After a week of marching under fire, the 6th Division finally made it back to Kut Alamara on the 2nd of December. Officers from the 6th Division questioned the decision on returning to Kut. They wouldn't be able to defend off an attack and also put the civilians at risk. The, the civilians' loyalty was also in question. They could turn on the British at any time. Also, a risk Another risk for the civilians, if they didn't turn on the British, they could be viewed as British sympathizers by the Turks. But instead of expelling the civilians, Townsend decided to let them stay. It was estimated that the 6th Division who retreated from Salman Pak and the soldiers who'd stayed at Kut now numbered 11,600 or roughly around there. Townsend believed this, along with the 60-day rations, would be enough for the men to hold until reinforcements arrived who were promised. On December 5th, Nurettin Pasha's advance guard reached Kut. By the 8th of December, they had positions which fully encircled the town. Again, this is a very bad situation for the British forces there. The Turks were hell-bent on shelling the crap out of Kut. Because most of the city was made up of mud and brick homes, you could imagine the obliteration artillery made. Along with artillery pounding the city, snipers from the riverbanks constantly harassed the troops, and machine gun fire made it dreadful. Goltz Pasha made a visit to the front at Kut to come up with a plan with Nuretan Bay. Both commanders disagreed with the strategy. Bay wanted to hit the British on the head with an assault while Goltz wanted to starve the British into a surrender. Both are fighting commanders, but Bay is a little more, a little more raw in his style. He was a take the fight to the enemy kind of style while Goltz analyzed the decisions that could possibly save more men. Nuretan Bay waited until Goltz left to proceed with his plan of attacking the British. On Christmas Eve, the Ottomans launched an attack on Kut. The fighting was fierce. Casualties were high, no shocker there. 
but the Ottomans suffered the most. It got so bad, the British were actually taking pity on them. British soldiers wrote in their diaries of men throwing bread and water to the suffering Turks who were, who were stuck between the crossfire. The dead laid in the open for weeks past Christmas Eve until the corpses were able to be removed. The casualties were so high that after the battle on Christmas Eve, Norenton Bay made no further attempt at storming British positions at Kut. He went with Gold's Pasha's theory on starving them out by cutting off supply lines. When Goltz returned to Kut, he was so appalled at the casualty rate from just one day of attack that he relieved Bay of his position and reassigned him to the Caucasus Front. Nuretin's replacement was Halil Bey, a cousin of Enver Pasha, the Minister of War. Townsend sent a telegraph following Christmas Eve stating the desperate need for reinforcements. The 28th Brigade under General George Young Husband was already gathering it in Basra on December 2nd. Lieutenant General Sir Fenton Almir, the new commander of the relief force, had arrived that same week. Nixon gave Almir his orders on the 8th of December to proceed up the Tigris and defeat the Ottoman forces and to relieve Townsend and Kut. Almir was confident that with the 2nd Division of the Indian Army en route from France, which were supposed to arrive in February of 1916, this would be enough to get the job done. For Townsend, though, this was concerning. He didn't think his men might be able to last until February. While his numbers were reducing, he was witness to the enemy reinforcements arriving in mass. After the loss at Gallipoli, the British High Command feared the same. Almier ordered Young Husband to advance on the Tigris on the 3rd of January. Young Husband later wrote in his diary that because they were not in full strength, this was a grave mistake. And a grave mistake it would be. For the Ottomans, because they were out to cut off the, all supply lines, they'd established several defensive positions between Kut and Basra. Two Ottoman divisions were sent to Baghdad to reinforce garrison. By January, the Ottomans had numerical superiority over the British. British estimates later had the Turks number around 27,000, while Almir's relief force along with what remained at Kut didn't even total 23,000. The relief force first engaged the Ottomans on the 7th of January near the village of Sheikh Saad, 25 miles downstream from Kut. The Turkish trenches extended for miles between both sides of the river, forcing the British to make a frontal assault over flat ground. In the next four days, the British suffered over 4,000 casualties until they finally took the Turkish trenches. Almir immediately telegraphed Townsend saying his forces were making their way on both sides of the Tigris. You'll have to imagine the motivation from the soldiers who'd been surrounded and trapped for 35 days after hearing this news. Four days later, the relief force engaged the Turks at Alwadi. The British lost 1,600 men, or sorry, 1,600 more men, but did manage to drive the Ottomans back a second time. This sounds like they're making progress. However, the relief force was 
force was now down to an estimated 9,000 men. Yet, they still pressed on as ordered to do so, this time at the most heavily defended position of Hana, a narrow stretch of land between impassable swamps and the Tigris. <clears throat> On the 21st of January, Elmir ordered his troops into another frontal assault across open ground. You wouldn't think a place like Iraq has swampy or muddy terrain, but they do. The British troops were falling and slipping everywhere in the mud following recent rainstorms. They had to seek cover and fast. This became open season for Turkish riflemen and machine gunners. For the first time in the battles of Mesopotamia, the British took more casualties than they inflicted. After two days of fighting, the British were forced to retreat back from Hana because they suffered too many casualties. Elmir had no choice but to wait for reinforcements to rebuild his depleted relief force. If you were Townsend and the soldiers trapped in Kut, that motivation completely died. This wasn't what they wanted to hear. One good thing that did happen for the British at Kut was the seasonal downpour of rain that caused the Tigris to rise. This forced the Turks to move back nearly 2,000 yards. And because of this, they wouldn't be able to launch another assault until the water levels dropped back down. Little did the British know the Turks weren't planning another assault. They were planning on starving them out. Townsend, knowing the relief party wasn't coming anytime soon, was forced to reduce all his rations in late January. He cut them by 50%. The cut in rations wasn't only for the soldiers, it was also for the 6,000 civilians of the town. He then ordered his soldiers to go door-to-door -door searching for food. They recovered quite a bit, in fact... After the search, they went from a 22-day supply to an 84-day supply with the half rations. Of course, this did upset the civilians who had their food requisitioned, but desperate times call for desperate measures. Now, it's bad for the British and Coot, but think about the civilians. They too had to endure the constant artillery and gunfire harassment they were forced to give up their food, then to be put on half rations. The British started suspecting some of the citizens of passing intelligence to the Ottomans, and the Ottomans considered the civilians collaborators for housing the British. They were screwed either way. The Ottomans were so bitter towards the citizens at this point, they would open fire on anybody fleeing from Kut. Didn't matter if it was woman or child or a combination of both. If you were seen fleeing, you were getting mowed down. Here's another big problem. Actually, a really big problem. This time for the Hindu and Muslim soldiers in Kut. A portion of the rations, I'm sorry, I, I'll stand corrected. A big portion of the rations was meat coming from beef and horses they slaughtered to feed the troops. Well, these soldiers were vegetarian. They were getting fewer calories than everybody else. They began to starve. A great number of these soldiers died of starvation. And if you look at pictures, you can Google this, put the Siege of Kut. They'll show you some pretty horrific pictures of these Indian and Muslim soldiers. Um, I, you know, I'm not comparing 
Coot Olimar and the siege of it to any sort of Nazi death camp, but this is what they look like. It's truly sad. Um, the Ottomans actually played on this. They began their propaganda by throwing leaflets tied to stones into the city, asking the soldiers to kill their English officers and come over to the Turkish side where they'd be protected by Allah. A small portion of these soldiers accepted the offer. On the 10th of March, Halil Bey, sorry, we're in 1916. That's the 10th of March, 1916. Halil Bey sent a message to Townsend inviting him to surrender. Townsend denied the offer, but he did ask permission from the British High Command to begin negotiations come April when his supplies would run out. Lord Kitchener jumped into the talks and proposed a couple ideas to relieve Townsend and his men. First was to send a group of agent provocateurs to stir up a mass uprising against the Ottoman Empire, much like Najaf and Karbala. If the movement grew in size, this could force Halil Bey, Halil Bey to dispatch troops to confront these uprisings, allowing enough space for the relief force to break through. Second option was to offer a large sum of money to a senior Ottoman commander to turn a blind eye to Townsend and his regatta slipping out the back door. But this would take a special kind of officer to help pull this off. The man for this job was Captain T.E. Lawrence, a.k.a. Lawrence of Arabia. Lawrence had extensive knowledge and contacts within Arabia, along with Arab officers in the Ottoman army. He basically appealed to an Arab named Suleiman Fadi, a former member of the Ottoman parliament, to spark another rebellion. Well, it didn't work. So he went for the next best option to bribe a high-ranking Ottoman officer. Lawrence sailed from Egypt on the 22nd of March, arriving in Basra on the 5th of April. By this time, the relief party was given a new commander, General Sir G.F. Goring, who resumed attacks on Ottoman positions on the 5th of April, 1916. Goring and his men went head-to-head -head with the Ottomans. Some historians have termed this as the First Battle of Kut. They fought hard during the month of April and suffered many casualties. And I'm getting little deep into 19, 1916, so I'm just going to try to sum this up. Also in April, the Royal Flying Corps number 30 squadron made the first air supply drop in history. They dropped food and ammunition intended for the men of the regatta. And I say intended because the majority of the resupply ended up in the Tigris or in the Turkish trenches. Townsend and his men only retrieved three more days worth of supplies out of this airdrop. The men were starving. Some of the Muslim soldiers even broke down and ate what meat was left. After failed negotiations, Townsend called for a ceasefire on April 26, 1916. On the 29th, he just had enough and surrendered. The siege of Kut lasted 147 days. It's believed that an estimated 13,000 British troops were taken prisoner. Many were put to work on the railway line from Anatolia and Baghdad. 
Months after the surrender, the British Indian Army conquered the whole region from Kut to Baghdad as part of the fall of Baghdad in March of 1917. The siege of Kut is a dark chapter in British military history. Most would say this should have never happened. The British were a much stronger army than the Ottomans. I'm sure if you're Turkish today, you'd take some offense to that because the Ottomans may not have been viewed as an Entente power, but they packed a punch. They were fighters. And yeah, I do believe the British army was more better put together. I'll say that. The dark pages of British military losses during the Great War usually comes from poor leadership decisions. The men fighting in the battles is never questioned. They were hard as nails. By pushing Townsend's men from the 6th Division deep into Iraq all by themselves was just a recipe for disaster. And Townsend feared this and expressed this concern, so you can't blame him. Here we have another example where senior leadership or high command refused to listen to commanders on the ground and only listen to their ego. But if you're the Ottomans, the underdogs in this war, things are starting to look up. Here, they took thousands of British prisoners at the Siege of Coote. They drove off the British and the French from the Dardanelles. The tide has turned in 1915. All right, folks, that's going to be it for this episode. And that's going to be it for the Ottoman series. I got a little deep into 1916. I'm going to have to reel it back a bit because I still got a little little stuff to cover. I want to thank you all for listening. And again, folks, thank you for your support for the show. And thank you for supporting me during my downtime for my much-needed rest. Until the next episode, take care, everyone. Mm-hmm.